Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On this week's episode, we have Lauren. Hello. And Tim. Hello. And Justin. This week we find out whether our subconscious or conscious minds are better at solving if relying or not. Building miniature ecosystems simulates with robots and tests new genetic plants, as well as experimenting with just how many smells can we actually catalog and produce. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. So this week's City of Science is Chevy Chase in Maryland. Now, Justin, I'm, you're going to tell me, Chevy Chase is an actor, not a city. But, ladies and gentlemen, you're incorrect. Chevy Chase is a town city located in the Montgomery County in Maryland, United States, which is in the northeastern United States. For all of you playing along at home, and it's got a population of about 9,300. Now, why on earth are we talking about this tiny little town with a humorous name? We're talking about it because in this one of the stories this week, we're going to talk about understanding the sense of smell and all the different ways that we can analyze and understand smell. And a lot of this research was done at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which is based in Chevy Chase in Maryland. Now, Howard Hughes Medical Institute doesn't sound like a big brand name university until you think about the fact that it was founded by Howard Hughes, who is effectively the inspiration for Iron Man. Howard Hughes was a pioneering businessman, philanthropist, filmmaker, aerospace engineer, and aviator who made crazy planes like the Spruce Goose, as well as all kinds of weird experimental jets through lavish parties, had a biopic made about him starring Leonardo DiCaprio, and a number of other things who was directly the inspiration for Iron Man's character, Tony Stark. He was a really great big impact on American life, especially as in the, from the 30s to the 60s. Uh, and he served as uh, you know, a, a massive philanthropist who really funded research, including making the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. So that's why Chevy Chase in Maryland gets the honor of being this week's City of Science. Now, Justin, I want you to look deeply into my eyes okay. and for the re- for the record for everyone listening i just want you to know that this episode is actually being recorded by a skype so this is completely impossible right so not only is it a radio medium but also <laughs> the experiment we're suggesting <laughs> is not possible please continue i want you to look deeply into my eyes and Done. tell me if i'm lying about what recording in person or having eyes recording in person okay well i aside from objective evidence you sound like you're being truthful and you're, you look like you're telling a convincing lie. But that sounds really interesting. So wh- why are we trying to tell people they're lying or not? Do eyes actually really tell us anything about lies and truth? Well, research um, at the university in Berkeley has suggested that actually our conscious mind, we think we're great lie detectors, but our conscious mind is actually holding us back. We're not as good at picking out if people are lying as we thought we are. That's really funny because, okay. you know, there's that show, Would You Lie, or lie to Me, I believe it was, where there was a profiler, um, quasi-Australian actor guy who was, like, figuring out crimes by checking if they were lying or not, using very powerful methods of deduction. But are you telling me if just someone just guessed it, that actually would be better? I'm saying that our accuracy accuracy which is about 54 percent is actually pretty much the same as if we were just guessing (laughs) oh so you're saying that we should think less about what people are saying and just trust our instincts when people when we think people are lying rather than trying to guess if they're lying or not well what the study actually was um was looking into researching was whether our unconscious mind is actually a lot better at picking up if people are lying than our conscious mind 
because it doesn't seem to make sense that we can't tell if someone's lying, considering we seem to, as human beings, pick up a lot on other people's feelings and how they're thinking. So this, yeah, this um, study was based on if our unconscious mind was a lot better at picking up if someone was lying or not. This is really interesting. How do they actually test all of these hypotheses? Because I must imagine it's really hard to actually control for an unconscious versus a subconscious a subconscious versus a conscious decision. Well, they did this um, by testing a couple of ways. They um, first tested people's like conscious ability to tell if people were lying by getting 72 participants to watch a bunch of suspects in a mock crime. Um, one group of suspects went into a shop and then just left again. Another group um, left and actually stole some money during it. And then um, they were all filmed saying that saying the same statement that they hadn't stolen the money and the participants had to identify which group was lying. Okay. Um, turns out that um, the participants could only tell if people were lying 43% of the time and could only tell if people were telling the truth 48% of the time. Right, and this is where they were, they were consciously trying to make the decision? Yes. Okay. So how do they do a different experiment for a subconscious decision? So to test whether someone's subconscious was a lot better at picking out liars, they used an implicit association test to probe um, the participants' like automatic instincts towards the suspects and what they associated with them. So what they found out was that people were more likely to associate um, words like untruthful or dishonest or deceitful with the people who were actually lying and were more likely to um, think of words and connect words such as honest or valid with the people who were telling the truth. Oh, so they basically did a, a sample and association test like those word games. So when they weren't be actually being asked if they thought the subject was lying or not, when they weren't actually thinking about it, they were actually, it was much easier for them, they, they were much more accurate as to whether that person was lying? Yes, they were a lot more accurate. Um, they, they associated whether someone was being more truthful or not just automatically. But if they actually thought about it, yeah. then they were yeah less likely to pick up on it. So that implies that if when we're um, when we're actually trying to consider whether someone is lying or not, we may be um, making decisions based off a criteria that may not actually apply. We're just thinking, we're thinking, we think we know they're lying when we think we know what a liar looks like when in fact we don't. That that's that shows some really interesting parts of, or I guess weaknesses in this experiment as well because. There's a certain amount, and the way that they actually conducted this experiment and test is relying, I guess, on profiling and association of people, specifically in the relation to crime and trustfulness, trustworthiness. So I think there's also potentially a lot of holes in, in the way that this research was done that could lead to needing further experimentation. Do you think this is a really valid sample size in the way that it was done experiment, Lauren? Uh, I think sample size, it was pretty good. I'm just a little um, unsure on the implicit association test. I think there's a lot of um, factors that probably couldn't be controlled for and to do with that. So it just, it seems a little bit sketchy and like they're pushing towards the unconsciousness having a lot more to do than the consciousness. I just don't think we're that good at picking out liars. So all those fantastic profiling criminal mastermind shows, um, trust your gut is probably just as good as instinct as uh, <laughs> all those uh, fancy skills or things that you learn. So have you ever wondered just 
how people come up with new types of plant species and new types of plants and animals. Uh, we've been modifying crops or aeons basically ever since we invented civilization and, and farming. And in the past, we've done this through very careful selective breeding programs over different seasons and life cycles. In fact, Mendel and his peas is the foundation of genetics. And there's a lot of fantastic work that's been done but really, we haven't moved that far beyond those initial days of growing a crop, making some modifications and splicing them together and, and, and seeing how it goes. Nowadays, we you know, splice in new genes from other plants that might be useful, and that's how we end up with those fantastic um, plants that are resistant to bugs without really needing any chemicals because they've taken the resistance to a, or a, a toxin that's produced by another plant and implanted into a new crop like wheat. And we've done a lot of great genetic testing and work like that. But still, the testing and experimenting on seeds and plants hasn't really changed that much. But a, a, a fantastic scientist and engineer from the University of Iowa has really taken a next step in sort of processing this. Lian Dong, who's an associate professor in electrical and computer engineering, has come up with an innovative new way to grow plants using robots wait did you just say robots that's right you know you don't often expect a, a, a computation and electrical engineering professor to be the one experimenting with new plants but he'd been thinking about it and he really figured that this is the way they're doing this is, is all wrong like this these biologists what do they know about efficiently growing things <laughs> are we talking about having um robot gardeners that are going around and watering the plants for us well basically so Liang Dong had this idea in his head and he, and he built a small research team and put them together to actually explore this at both the Iowa State University and the Georgia Institute of Technology. And he got a seed grant from the Plant Sciences Institute <laughs> to investigate seeds and plants uh, a, a on a chip. A seed grant, you say? Yeah, yes, plants on a chip. So basically there's a, a concept in, um, in analysis and laboratory, especially high-tech biotech work at the moment, called lab on a chip where they, they try and build a micro, um, a very small microprocessor or chip that you can then put samples of blood, of chemicals, of something onto it, and it will process that in very quick succession. And you could do a lot of samples, analyze them a lot at once. Possibly even potatoes? Yeah, that's right. So he's taken that and done that with seeds and plants. And it's really quite interesting because he's basically made a greenhouse, filled it with these seeds in these really carefully controlled um, place, placements and these little small chips. And then he's able to adjust the pressure, the temperature, the moisture, the humidity, and also the batches and the light that they're exposed to in really accurate ways and tune and analyze the plant's responses to these. He's basically testing thousands of seeds and plants at once and then slowly tuning and adjusting. So each time they come up with a new type of plant um, or new type of seed that they want to test, they can put them into this rig and and see how they respond to all types of different conditions. So instead of having it just growing a lot of plants in a, in a greenhouse, you're doing thousands upon thousands of seedlings in a small area. They're very tightly measured and controlled. So he's kind of created his own little world. Basically. <laughs> and, and it's... Um, it's, he's basically trying to get like a 128 of these different little growth greenhouses working simultaneously and independently. And it involves robotic arms, 
taking thousands of pictures at all the different stages of the plant's growth, measuring leaf colour, size, shoot size, all these different things that you would normally take a lot of geneticists and biologists lots of time to analyse, trying to do it all automatically in a massive scale way to get lots and lots of data. And that's a great boon for researchers. What could this data be used for? Well, I mean, and it's being used on plants at the moment here. And he's, he's experimenting with uh, fungal pathogens and soybeans to try and figure out uh, the way in which, you know, the way, way in which that fungus spreads through um, and interacts with soybeans, uh, which would obviously lead to building better resistance in these, in these soybeans uh, mm. to this fungus. But also he's thinking about using it and applying it for insects to do the same sort of thing, have lots of little insect mo- communities being analysed and modelled, as well as small fish like zebrafish, which are very common genetically tested fish. So it's, it's basically building miniature worlds to study and analyse automatically. And I think that's a fantastic piece of a way of combining our latest advances in technology with uh, pretty standard existing methods of research in a different field. So it's, like far, it's effectively farming on um, automatic farming on a micro scale. Exactly, automatic farms. And um, obviously, you know, if you extrapolate this into the future, you end up with the Matrix, clearly. (laughs) Obviously. In which we harvest, uh, in which we put humans on a chip. That's that's right. So, I mean, this is some really interesting research being done out of Iowa State University. And I think it's a, a great way of using my particular field of interest, robotics, to actually help biologists and other researchers out and really benefit from this interdisciplinary collaboration. So humans have um, have been long said to have a not amazing sense of smell. We're always compared to dogs or other animals and said that, you know, they have a much better... um, Other animals have a much better way of determining different odours from one another than humans. Um, And the the stat that's um, put around... The stat that gets quoted most often is the idea that we have... We can only smell about 10,000 different things. But... Um, that stat was actually um, it was an estimate made in the 1920s and it ha- has never been backed up by any, da- any data because testing olfactory response your, your smell sense of smell is a really tricky thing to do because uh, the, uh, what, what your olfactory response really is is it's a test of it's a test of chemicals in the air um, and you associate certain chemicals with, say, chocolate or with roses or with with a wet dog. Um, and so that's how we describe smells, by assigning them to different things. Uh, so researchers, researchers at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, uh, they, went, they did a test in which they took uh, over um, 200 different – sorry, over 100 – there's 128 different molecules, um, each which – individually would correspond to, say, grass or lemons. And then they mixed them together in mixtures of 10, 10 or 20 um, different combinations, making so- something that smelled like smelled nasty and weird and unlike anything anyone smelled before. And then they asked um, people to determine if they to see if they could tell the difference between two different um, two different combinations. Uh, and it turns out that they can. They, they, uh, each person was asked to make... Um, over 200 comparisons, and overall, they managed. They determined that a single person would be capable of discriminating at least one trillion different odors. So you can smell, 
you can um, have just like say your eyes can distinguish between um, several. Um, and so uh, your eyes can distinguish ten million different colors. The nose um, can distinguish over um, a trillion different odors. Well, one trillion certainly a lot more than ten thousand. I like the really funny yeah. part about this story is that um, then ten thousand different scents was this one of these legacy numbers from really old school science where they said, "Oh yeah, we did a study back then, and there's only ten thousand things," and everyone just goes, "Yeah, okay," and continues on for a hundred years. I find it no. really interesting that no one had really done any research on this before because I know we've done a lot to do with, um, for example, eyes and sense of taste and things like that before. And I think it's because sense is one of those really yeah. weird subjective, can be subjective as well and hard to describe. Mm-hmm. Because there's no, there's no natural analogue. Well, there's no analogue for, um, for smelling things. Like you, When you see things, you can generate different colours. You can go, all right, this is the colour I saw. And then you can compare the two colors and, and they go like, okay, I'm seeing when you're looking at, at that piece of, you're, you're looking at that piece of paper, I'm seeing this color and you're seeing that color. We can, you can, you can, um, use the ranges of colors to compare people's vision. And so you can determine how many, how many colors people can see. But with smells, it's very difficult because you can't, you can't describe a smell in comparison to other smells. Um, or if, if you can, you can only do that anecdotally. You can say, like, it's a lot like summer. chocolate. And someone goes, well, so, yeah, yeah, it smells like summer, smells like chocolate, smells like, you know, my my um, my ex, ex-boyfriend's deodorant, that sort of thing. But when it's, it's very hard to compare that between people. Uh, so, so how did they overcome mm-hmm. this in the experiment? Uh, well, what they did is they, instead of giving people, like, familiar smells, they made sure that the smells that they were making were unique. So they were something that you couldn't recognize what the smell was, so you had no association beforehand. Mm-hmm. And secondly, you're comparing those smells to other complex smells. So it was two things that both smelled really strange and something like something you've never smelled before, but you could figure out which one smelled different. So they would say they'd mix... Ten different smells, and then in in another vial they'd mix nine of those smells, but one different one. And yeah, so the, the yeah. mixture would be nearly identical, but not 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 entirely identical. And then you'd sniff the two, and you'd be asked. To, so you'd sniff three vials, and you'd be asked to, asked which one of those vials was different. And that's really interesting because if you compare it to, say, how we would do sight, if you were to undertake a similar experiment with eyesight, an analogy that might make this make more sense is if you took a color slider and you basically, or a CMYK values, and you basically chose random combinations for CMY and K, um, and then you presented it to someone and say, yes, what color is that? Or, or with RGB values, you combine red, yellow, and blue and gave them a, a, a new color based on a combination of colors that they may recognize it's kind of similar what they're doing with smell where they're actually just combining different base smell elements which they are in pure chemicals effectively yeah so like if you, yeah the, with the side analogy it would be if you took say you mixed what um you took your rgb values red green blue and you set say set one set one of your colors as red 50 blue 50 um 
green 50, and then the other one you went red 50, blue 50, green 48, producing nearly identical but very similar colors. Then if you were to get someone to look at those two, you would ask, all right, sorry, look at three, um, three, three colors, um, two of which were the same and one was slightly different. You'd be asked to pick which one was different. Yeah, that, that's, that's really fascinating. So we've spoken a bit a couple of times on this show about scent robots, scent um, keychains on your mobile phone that could produce different things or smell-o-vision. And a lot of it runs into the technical complexity of reproducing smells so that you can actually experience them again. And we have this issue where we're, we're constantly trying to um, figure out the best way to reproduce a smell for someone. But what this analysis is showing is that it, it, we, we thought it was complex before because we're only trying to replicate, replicate you know, 10,000 smells. But in fact, it's considerably more complicated. However, by using yeah. a similar system to the way we do color, we can actually combine the things to get those smells again as opposed to relying on trying to produce one root smell cause. Yeah, and the cause, this, isn't, this doesn't mean that you have... Um, one trillion, you know, one trillion different smells. In fact, in an average person's lifetime, it's highly unlikely that they'd get anywhere near that number. Uh, but what it means is that when it, whenever you encounter a new smell, say a different type of chocolate, you're actually able to catalogue that alongside your other other similar smells, and you, and know and you can know exactly why they're different, even if you have no perhaps have no words for that your brain does can't understand that these two things do smell different. So eventually I'll know and, every single perfume um, in the world? Yes, you could. Um, in fact, many people who, people who work with perfume um, find that they can identify very, like can identify hundreds of different, um, different products purely just, just by smelling them. They don't have to look at the label. They could, they could be given um, all these different perfumes in blind containers and would be able to uh, remember each one. This is really pushing the envelope of knowing what's going in your nose in more detail. And so this 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 adds to our knowledge of our human senses because we know, we know exactly how the the frequencies that um the ear is capable of um hearing because people someone because studies were done and tested it, and we know that humans can only see within a certain visual a certain uh, wavelengths because someone went and tested it. But with um, smells, this is the first time someone's actually gone and go and decided to um, test the range, the range of um, differentiation between smells, as opposed to you just using this legacy number from um, from old science because it was very hard to test. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. This week we found out just how we can tell truth from lies with our eyes and catalogued all the smells in the world and just how many there are. And we also looked at ways we can grow plants with robots and test them on a massive and micro scale. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.